0: Good evening, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to um, uh, welcome you to um, uh, this occasional address in the 21st Century uh, Medicine Series. This is a series that uh, Professor Bruce Robinson, our previous Dean of Medicine, uh, initiated uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, as its name implies, uh, it's intended uh, to uh, provide an insider window uh, into the new medicine uh, of the 21st century uh, and uh, the changes in the diagnosis, um, the way in which we think about the disease in terms of mechanism and, of course, also the new management opportunities that will arise. And, of course, we're all aware of paradigms that are changing. Previous speakers in this series have included... um, uh, Professor Chris Samsarian and Professor Kate Steinbeck from uh, from our institution. Chris of course is a molecular geneticist who works in uh, disorders of uh, cardiac development, conduction disorders. Um, Kate is a, an adolescent health specialist and of course we had the opportunity um, towards the end of last year to meet with Anne Kelso to talk about the funding uh situation and where NHMRC was coming. This evening we uh, have the opportunity to meet with um, a, a good a colleague of mine uh, uh, and of many of us, uh, Professor Raj Thacker from uh, the Department of Endocrinology from the Churchill and Radcliffe Hospitals uh, in Oxford. Um, Raj uh, is the May Professor of Medicine. Uh, he has over 350 publications and they include publications in the New England Journal of Medicine. In Nature, Nature Genetics, uh, and the Journal of Clinical Investigation, and Lancet, and others, and I think many of you will be aware of uh, of Raj's contributions uh, through uh, his published work. And he's, uh, we've had an opportunity to talk today, and he's, as you might imagine, he has some very interesting uh, papers uh, currently uh, under review and uh, and currently about to be sent off. Um, he's one, as you might expect. Uh, a significant number of prizes and awards uh, through his career, starting with the Young Investigator Award from the American Society of Bone and Mineral Research, uh, going right through to senior awards, uh, uh, professional awards. And, uh, and the fact that it's there in his CV, I think, is a sign to all of us uh, that he actually considered that very early award uh, that was his break, if you like. Uh, into uh, the the field of endocrinology and bone metabolism uh, as a a significant step uh, in the pathway, because that pathway uh, has taken him to, uh, for example, the Lewis V. Avioli Founders Award from ASBMR, that's for a senior uh, scientist, the Dow Medal from the Society for Endocrinology in the United Kingdom, uh, and uh, perhaps, you know, Uh, most excitingly of all, uh, he's recently become a fellow of the Royal Society. So uh, Raj, uh, welcome, it's uh, fantastic to have you here at the University of Sydney, we're looking very much forward to your lecture and to the opportunity to discussing uh, the lecture uh, at the end. Thank you. So please join me in welcoming you.
1: Um, Arthur, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Actually, um, when you sometimes uh, l- l- listen to what's being said, you kind of wonder w- whether they're talking about the same person, actually. So, uh, but it was interesting to know some of the things I've actually done, so thank you very much for that. Um, you- you've done your homework. Um, uh, it's a pleasure to, to come to Sydney. Uh, when Arthur invited me to g- give... Um, uh, this talk about the 21st uh, Century Medicine Lecture Series, How Could I Refuse Arthur, first of all. But uh, coming to Sydney is always glorious, I find. I, I, I was saying to Arthur, "It's uh, I, I don't know how you managed to get work done here, it's so beautiful. Uh, when I left England last night, uh, I think it was last night, uh, uh, but I, I just got here at 6 o'clock this morning, uh, we had storms, rain, everything else, and suddenly to come to this wonderful sunshine, everything, it's, 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 it's terrific, actually. Uh, And Arthur's timed this beautifully because he knows I'm standing up and I can't go to sleep when I'm standing, so (laughs) I'll I'll try and do my best. So the the talk uh, was uh, about calcium regulation and advances in treatment to fit in with the theme. And I've tried to provide a sort of slightly enigmatic title from rhinos to bones, and I hope that'll become a bit clearer uh, in a little while. But I, I thought what I'd like to do, if that's all right, is to perhaps start off a little bit about calcium regulation Uh, because not everybody here will be in the calcium field. Uh, How do we get there? Look at the history of where we are with calcium regulation, And then where we've taken it from there with the new molecular biology uh, in terms of advances in understanding the biology uh, 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 and and the pathological processes in our patients, and also to see how we can make use of that knowledge for advancement in in treatments. So it is going to try and cover all of that, and I hope we can uh, manage that, but we'll see what we can uh, do. And Of course, my funders are, are, are on there. So let's look at the calcium regulation per se, and I'm sure most of you know this anyway, but here's our skeleton uh, over there, and we have in our body about one kilogram of calcium. But well, if you think about it, that is like a bag of sugar. Okay, one kilogram of sugar. But of course, our calcium isn't like a bag of sugar because it's organizing to this fantastic structure of the skeleton uh, where 99% of that calcium is. So the question is, how, how, how does that happen, actually, and what's what sort of happening h- here? And it's fascinating. And if you think about the skeleton, actually, it's the one thing that's going to survive all of us after we have left this earth. If you look at the Egyptian pharaohs and the mummies and everything else, what do we always find? We find this skeleton, okay? We don't find much else. So this is really, really important about us, in, in a way, if you want to look at it that way. The, the other thing is, most people think about bone as being a static structure. You know, it's bone is like a concrete pillar, like you see back there, you know. But those of us who are in the field know it isn't. It's actually a very dynamic uh, structure. And you know this, if you break a bone, bone is dynamic, it heals, okay? And you're having microfractures all the time, they're always healing. And the skeleton I'm standing in today is not the skeleton I was standing in 10 years ago. It's been completely renewed during those 10 years. So there is a very highly organized um, a regulatory process that's going on. And how is this sort of happening? Well, of course, it's happening by a number of endocrine and paracrine mechanisms, many of which are being elucidated. And one of the earliest ones that was identified on this is the parathyroid glands, which control the distribution of ionized calcium in the extracellular fluid and what is in the bone over here. And remember that 99% of the calcium is in the skeleton and 1% is in the extracellular fluid. It might be 1%, but I promise you it's vital. If you drop your calcium in the extracellular fluid by a little bit, you'll be having epileptic seizures. Okay, so it's as vital as that. It might be small, but it's vital. So, as I say, it's all controlled by the parathyroid glands are the master regulators of calcium metabolism, and that's been my interest uh, in this field. And the question is, um, what what happens now? Just to sort of, before you talk about the parathyroid and the history, as I was already alluding to, calcium regulation is important if you get a low calcium... I uh, get neuromuscular debility, seizures, tetanic, cardiac arrhythmias, and if you get a calcium that's high, you can get kidney stones or fractures uh, as well. So ECL calcium has many physiological roles in maintenance of bone and muscle contraction, et cetera. So it's, it's really very important. So the parathyrus are the major regulators and how the parathyrus discovered. Well, they were actually discovered first in the rhino. And this is, uh, it was discovered in the Indian rhinoceros that was at London Zoo we're talking about 1849. So Arthur was telling me that the, the, the institute here was founded in 1850. This is a year before then, OK? So what had happened was this was in the days of the empire. And uh, in the days of the empire, animals uh, from all over the world came along, and they went to London Zoo. And this gentleman here, Richard Owen, who was also FRS, he was a Hunterian professor at the Royal College of Surgeons, had first refusal on any animal that died in London Zoo uh, to, dissect it, to dissect it and glean its anatomy and various things. So Richard Owen was offered the in, one and only Indian rhinoceros, and you can also tell it's an Indian rhinoceros because they have one horn. The African rhinoceros has two horns, that's why it's rhinoceros unicornus. Now, so Richard Owen was offered this Indian rhino that had just died in 1849 for dissection, and he said, yeah, that's great, I'll do that. And in those days, I think things were a little bit more flexible, you know. Uh, so, so, so imagine this two-ton animal, uh, and he decided to dissect it, uh, and he, dissected, he took parts of it uh, home, had a very uh, understanding and patient wife. and thank goodness when he was dissecting all this, it was the winter, because uh, otherwise you couldn't imagine what the stench would have been like as well. Anyway, he dissected this uh, and uh, uh, presented his findings um, uh, 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 at the uh, Transaction of the Zoological Society in London in 1862. You can tell that there was no pressure there in those days about publishing fast, okay? You know, times were a bit more relaxed. Anyway, he, did, he, he, he identified these glands, and this is the actual specimen that he dissected, and this is in the Royal College of Surgeons in, in, in London, and the parathyroid is over here. OK, you can, I, I put a red circle around it so you can actually see it, but it, it's tiny and it, 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 it's sort of there. And the way he reported it was to say, uh, oh dear, this is a problem between Macs and PCs. Uh, the English gets turned to Latin sometimes, or some gobbledygook. But basically, he describes it to say that there was a tiny yellowish gland at the bottom of the thyroid, uh, and, and, and that those are the parathyroids uh, that, 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 that are there. I'm sorry about that, but we've got lost something between Mac and PC there. Uh, Anyway, so that was the rhinoceros uh, and it kind of got left uh, for about 20-odd years then. Sandstrom in uh, um, uh, Sweden, uh, in Uppsala, then as a medical student identified human parathyroids, okay? What a wonderful thing to do as a medical student. He spent lots of time in the post-mortem room. He needed to get a life-poor man, actually, but uh, he identified these and reported them uh, there. And we didn't know what they did at that time. So in 1891, Uh, There was an inadvertent parathyroidectomy done uh, when when, uh, Glee was taking out the thyroid and the patient died because of tetany and death and it became clear there was something wrong there uh, even though you were giving the patient thyroid extract that they died, and it was in about the 1920s that uh, uh, various work that was done by lots of people in in Austria and in the USA that showed that parathyroid tumors were associated with bone fractures, and it was in 1925 that Collip actually isolated parathyroid hormone, and that's how we knew. So, you know, quite a long history there of nearly 80 years uh, or so. So what happened in the next sort of 50 years is that this picture began to be emerged from a lot of very good uh, physiological and pathophysiological studies. And this is our understanding that's in many textbooks of medicine, which basically says if the calcium in the ECF drops, you get parathyroid hormone secretion. Parathyroid hormone acts on the bone to increase bone resorption. It acts on the kidney to reclaim calcium, IE calcium reabsorption. And it acts on the kidney to make 125-dihydroxyvitamin D that actually uh, uh, goes to the uh, uh, gut to increase calcium uh, absorption and all of these things will help to increase calcium in the ECF and thereby restore normal calcemia. So that's the picture we all know about from medical textbooks and everything else. Now there are several important lessons here from this slide actually. One is what we know. But the other thing is this. When I was an undergraduate, it's very important to to, to listen to our tutors. Uh, I think we're all very bad at it. But one message I got from my tutor was this. Uh, He had a particular thing about arrows. He did not like arrows in my essays or anywhere. And he said, the point about arrows is it hides ignorance. And I thought, what does he mean he hides ignorance? Okay? So if you think about it, what I've just told you today, so what's he on about? We know how calcium is controlled, what the physiological control of calcium is. Okay? That's the impression those arrows give to us. Okay? But think again, calcium drops, parathyroid hormone is secreted. Well, hang on a sec. How does the parathyroid sense calcium is dropping? All right. That arrow is actually hiding our ignorance Okay, so my, my, my message to everybody is, if you see arrows, and my gosh, I use them a lot, and you'll see them again, all right, don't, 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 don't get me wrong. If somebody's got an arrow, always think in your mind, challenge it. Hang on a minute, this is hiding ignorance. This is where we need to do research. This is where we need to find the mechanisms further, okay? And every one of these steps has, has, has this sort of thing. Uh, so, important message from this slide. If you take out on one message, challenge arrows, okay? Uh, and then, uh, so that's what I started to do. And I went to a very important lecture by a chap called uh, Stanbury. who was professor of medicine in Manchester. And he was talking about calcium and vitamin D regulation. And his lecture was entitled Stuck at the Plasma Membrane. And I thought, gosh, he's right. How do you get inside the cell? That's what we need to do to answer these questions, actually. And of course, it, the, the answer was later on molecular biology. You know, enabled us to dissect the cell. Uh, Owen dissected the rhinoceros we went down to the molecular level to, 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 to dissect that later on. So just to finish on this, okay, so it, 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 what we had found of the pathophysiology. We'd also known about the pathophysiology that parathyroid tumors gave rise to hypercalcemia. If you got some problems in the parathyroid kidney signaling pathways, you got hyper and hypocalcemia uh, uh, over here. Parathyroid development, of course, if you had maldevelopment, uh, you've got hypocalcemia, and the kidney, if you've got abnormalities of secretion, you've got kidney stones uh, as, as well. So the key thing to do was to identify patients with these sorts of disorders, uh, and then study them to identify what the molecular mechanisms of those patients and the, 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 the knowledge we got from that uh, to, to see how we could actually uh, fill in the gaps in our knowledge where those arrows are. And, of course, that has happened, and we now know, for example, there are lots of transcriptional factors, receptors, G-proteins, cell cycle regulators, scaffold proteins involved in etiology of parathyroid tumors. We also know that there are other the calcium-sensitive receptor and G proteins, et cetera, involved in parathyroid and kidney signaling. We also know in parathyroid development that there are a lot of transcriptional factors that are involved, as well as receptors and chaperone proteins. And if you get abnormalities on those, you do get congenital abnormalities of the parathyroids. And again, we know that there are channels and receptors involved uh, in calcium resorption that give rise to kidney stones. Now, the key thing about all of this, and this is what I want to focus on, is that in all of these, ones, you see the CASR, the calcium-sensing receptor, appearing. So for the rest of the talk, if you don't mind, I'd just like to focus on the calcium-sensing re- receptor, have to take questions on the other, other components, because I think we've only got a limited amount of time uh, to, 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 to talk about things. So what is a calcium-sensing receptor? Uh, uh, it's a G-protein coupled receptor, so it has a classical seven transmembrane domains. Uh, what it does do is that calcium-sensitive receptor has this very large extracellular domain. It's quite unique in that amongst uh, receptors. Uh, family C uh, GPCRs have these large extracellular domains. It's got the seven transmembrane domains and intracellular domain as well. And it functions as a dimer uh, in this way. And what I want you to just remember at the moment is that it's got these two lobes in the extracellular uh, binding domain uh, uh, and it has lots of calcium binding sites over there. And this cleft here between the two lobes is known as the Venus flytrap domain because it is said to trap calcium in there. Uh, so, so I just want you to tuck that away uh, for, in, in, in your mind for a while. Its ligands are a number of cations, uh, calcium included, but it could be also um, uh, gadolinium. Uh, uh, amino acids, positively charged uh, uh, um, poly- polyamines, and antibiotics as well. So perhaps it should have been called a cation sensing receptor as well. And part of this really goes back to its evolutionary origins, where it was a nutrient receptor, and that's why it's so promiscuous in its, its, its ligand. It's pretty promiscuous, I'll tell you here and now, in what G proteins it binds to, but because we only have PG rating for this show, okay, I'll stop there on, on, on that one. Anyway, it signals as I say. It's promiscuous in its ligands and via G proteins. So it, so it signals through G11, uh, Q, G12, 13, GIO, and GS, uh, and it signals via all sorts of different pathways. And here I've just illustrated one of these, and this is via G alpha 11 Q. Uh, it signals via PLC to increase intracellular concentration of IP3 which releases intracellular calcium stores to have effects downstream, either in the reduction of PTH secretion, or calcium absorption in the kidney, or in fact non-calcitropic actions, such as in insulin uh, over there. So the thing I'd just like to remember for a moment is this, because this will be important for a cellular assay that I'll mention later on. If you increase extracellular calcium, you can measure intracellular calcium as a readout for how the receptor is working. So that's easy. Alter extracellular calcium, read out as intracellular calcium. And if you just remember that for a moment, uh, we'll come back to that that, that in a minute. It has a pivotal role in calcium homeostasis, and it's widely expressed uh, uh, in a number of cells, uh, in and kidneys, but also uh, uh, brain, colon, prostate, uh, pancreas, etc. And it has what we call calcitropic actions, i.e. involving calcium, and non-calcitropic actions, i.e. things that aren't altering uh, the, the function of calcium. But for this talk, I'm just gonna concentrate on the calcitropic actions, uh, because that's where I want to illustrate the principles. Now, the other thing about the calcium sensing receptor, it is like Henry VIII. Now, you may say, gosh, he's really flipped now. You know, Coming from England, all you can think about is history. It's not true, actually, yeah. So let me tell you what I mean about this, okay? When I was a student, one of the things that was always sort of said, you know, yeah, you got a gene, one gene, encodes one protein, and, of course, if there are alterations to that protein, it'll make, give rise to one disease. All paradigms like that are challenged, and we now know that one gene can actually encode several proteins sometimes. And, in fact, one protein, like the calcium-sensing receptor, can give rise to several different diseases. And the reason why I compare this to Henry VIII is, of course, Henry VIII, until he came on the scene, the belief always was that one king just had one queen, uh, he decided to change this. We don't need to go into all the reasons for why he did all this, okay? It's, it's, it's quite controversial, probably as controversial as Donald Trump nowadays, okay? But let's leave that aside for a moment. But, you know, but we know that he went and had six wives, okay? Well, the calcium sensing receptor is better than that, okay? It's got seven disorders uh, listed over here, and I can tell you an eighth one later on as well, okay? So, so what are these, okay? So these are familial benign hypocalcemic hypercalcemia, where you've got a high calcium and a low urinary calcium, that's what patients have. You can get adult and neonatal forms of primary hyperparathyroidism as well. You can get a condition called autosomal dominant hypocalcemia with hypercalceria. So it's the opposite of this over here. There's a condition called Barter syndrome type 5. There are autoimmune conditions as well, giving rise to the equivalent of that, familial benign hypercalcemia, hypercalcemia. Uh, and some autoimmune hypoparathyroidism as well, okay? So there are at least seven and there's an eighth one and also I'll show you in a moment that you can actually be normal if you have mutations in this. So I'm just gonna focus on these four which are involved with the genetic side of things rather than the autoimmune side of things. So let's look at this first one. This is familial, so-called benign, hypocalceric hypercalcemia, FBHH. And it is characterized by the occurrence of raised serum calcium in the patients and reduced urinary calcium excretion. That's the ratio there. Now, here's the thing. It's familial, and it's inherited in an autosomal dominant uh, uh, manner, but you need to be careful. It may not always be familial because some patients may not have a family history because the mutation arises de nouveau. So, number one, you can take out familial. It's not always there benign, well not so. Patients may develop pancreatitis and chondrocalcinosis and severe primary hyperparathyroidism, so it's not benign. Hypocalceria, like that, well, actually, only 80% of patients, 75 to 80% of patients will have that relative hypocalceria. 20 to 25% may not, that's quite a high proportion actually, so they're not always hypocalceric, so you can take that out as well. Hypercalcemia. Well, no, not always so. Some patients who've got CSR mutations are normocalcemic, So you can take that out as, as well. So actually, we're not really, really left with anything, are we? So what is this condition, okay? The point I'm trying to make is this. We, as doctors and biologists, want to classify things. And you know about all that here from here from Botany Bay. That's where a lot of this work started, okay? Classification. It helps us to understand the world and nature and what's going on. But what we always know as physicians and as doctors is there are always exceptions to the rule. And therefore, that's what we need to bear in mind, okay? And you know, so that's why I'm going through that. So bearing in mind that, that, that it's a good framework and we define that condition but not every single patient will, 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 will fit into that, and that's what we need to, uh, to, to need to know. So here we are with this condition. I've got this thing that what it does to the calcium sensing receptor is that it causes a rightward shift in the dose response curve, i.e. it causes a loss of function. So let me try and illustrate this a little bit more on a couple of things. So if we look at hyper and hypocalcemic disorders, these loss of function mutations give rise to FHH and neonatal primary hyperparathyroidism. And, let, and now I'm saying it's not benign. Just look at this here. Here is a child, three weeks old, little baby. Look at these bones, they're terribly eroded, had a very high calcium, four millimoles per liter uh, is, 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 is the SI units that we use. Um, uh, you multiply that by four to, to get it into, into, into six, 16 grams. per Very high calcium, and look at these terribly eroded bones. If you don't do something here, this is a life threat, the threatening condition with bone demineralization, this child will get fractures, Uh, hypotonia, respiratory distress, and die. That's how dire this condition is. And you're looking at death in a matter of weeks here. So you've got to do something. So what this child had, at the age of four weeks, had a parathyroidectomy. Now imagine how difficult that is. I showed you those parathyroids from a rhinoceros, okay? Two tons. Imagine the size of a baby compared to that rhinoceros. How small do you think those parathyroids are gonna be? A poor surgeon is gonna have to find those. We're fortunate in having good surgeons that I work with who will find them for for, for us. But if you can buy some time, it's a good thing. But it's really worth doing. So so here, here she is at the age of four weeks she has this, at the age of four and a half months, so three and a half months after this. Look at those bones healed. She's normal calcemic. This was quite a while ago. This was work done with Beat Steinemann at the Kinderspital in Zurich. This child is well. She keeps in touch 20 years later, writes letters every year to say she's well, um, and, and things are fine. So really worthwhile doing. So what we do to buy some time now is that we will actually use a drug, a calcium mimetic drug uh, to to buy some time if we need some time to get the calcium down uh, so so the child can grow up a little bit and we can operate probably at the age of two months or three months if if, if it can do that. So that tells you the devastation of this condition and this is due to loss of function mutations and the gain of function mutations give rise to this condition autosomal dominant hypocalcemia, the opposite of FHH. What do I mean by these gain and loss of functions? Okay. Remember I said to you right at the beginning when I was telling you about the calcium-sensing receptor, just remember the assay we use. If you change extracellular calcium, we measure intracellular calcium when we we, we want to see how the receptor is working. So here we are. uh, We're changing extracellular calcium, and we're measuring intracellular calcium over here. And what we're doing is we're taking the receptor, and we're expressing it in... Uh, at cells, these are human embryonic kidney cells over here. And you can see here's a nice sigmoidal relationship of a normal receptor over here. This is the wild type receptor over here, okay? And we can work out the EC50 over here, and it's about two and a half million moles for the normal wild type receptor. Now, if a patient's got FHH, as over here we express it, you can see that this curve has shifted to the right And the EC50 is much, much higher, okay? So it means that, oh, thank you, okay. It means that you need a much higher calcium to get the response that you're looking for over there. So this is called a loss of function mutation. If you get somebody with autosomal dominant hypocalcemia, you get a left foot shift, and this is a gain of function because it's active at a much lower calcium over here. Now, the key thing here is we're not saying the receptor isn't working. They are working, Okay? But they're not working as well. So let me, let me draw the analogy a bit here. Um, when I was younger and poorer, uh, I, uh, all I could have was, was, was a little mini. And it was, it was a really old mini with, uh, with gear, gears and all that sort of thing. And I had to get up this hill. And you, know, you put your foot down on the accelerator, be in fourth gear to build up the speed. And you get up. And by the time you're trying to get up the hill, the thing was really struggling. and had to drop down gears. And you were in about second or first gear by the time you got up this very sharp hill. All right? Now I'm older and a bit richer. I've got a BMW. Oh, sorry. I didn't uh, declare conflicts of interest. Is this okay to talk about BMWs and minis? Okay, yeah. Uh, Anyway, so now I have a BMW. Okay? Um, And I go up the same hill and it's got such a super-duper engine and everything else. Okay? You know, I can still get up in fifth gear. Okay? Right gain of function, okay? So in other words, it's a matter of gears and set points and how efficiently that receptor is working, okay? Right, so, 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 so it's not that it's not working, it's just how, how it's working is, is what we're talking about. Now, the, 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 so, so, so this is ADH, this is FHH, and these are two different uh, uh, sets of mutations. This mutation is occurring at codon uh, uh, involving leucine at codon 173, and this is uh, uh, affecting uh, uh, pro- a proline, at codon 221, and I'll come back to why I'm showing those, but as so long as you understand the FHH, loss of function, ADH, gain of function over here. Now, what is ADH? Just to tell you a little bit about it, because I told you about FHH. So, when, we, when familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, low urine, high calcium, was uh, 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 identified and the calcium sensing receptor was involved, we were working on that, Uh, And Ed Brown uh, did all the pioneering work and published his his, his, uh, uh, famous nature paper in 1993 and we all began to work on it. And um, one of the things, uh, my daughter at that time uh, was about uh, uh, two to three years old. And I'm sure we've all done this. You know, you get home to read your daughter or your children a bedtime story or books and things and we were reading opposites. What's the opposite of sharp? It's blunt, you know, that sort of thing. So there I'm reading this story, and we're working on all this with science. Simon Simon who was an MRC-trained fellow in my group at the time, we're working on this. We're talking about loss of function, hypocalceria, hypercalcemia, and thought, reading this book about opposites, I thought, I wonder what the opposite is? Hypercalceria, hypocalcemia. Could we get gain of function calcium-sensing receptor mutations that might give rise to that? So the penny dropped. No point looking at the hypercalcemia; too common. You know, it'd be like searching for a needle in the most ginormous haystack. So we thought, let's look at the hypocalcemia. So what we decided to do was to look at patients who got hypoparathyroidism, diagnosed on the base of a low serum calcium and PTH in the normal range, a combination that suggested to us a CSR set point abnormality. Now you might sort of say, well, hang on a minute, what do you mean a nor- normal range of, that sort of thing? something? If, if that was the case, wh- why were they called hypoparathyroid? Because the PTH is in the normal range. Well, as physicians, one of the things we're really g- good at doing is if the, if, if the data or the facts don't fit our knowledge, we ignore them. All right? You know, that's fine. We all do it, okay? Yeah. So, so everybody sort of like, I say it's lousy. Ignore that, you know, it's hypoparathyroidism, okay? So, 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 so that was the thing, and we thought, well, hang on a minute, this, this might not be hypoparathyroidism, this might be something else. So we thought it might be due to gain of function, CSR mutations, uh, and, it were, and cut a long story short, uh, we had very few cases uh, in our clinic, uh, but the great thing about things is people are friendly. So I rang up friends around the world um, and got families uh, from New Zealand, from Britain, from right, right across the world. Um, uh, we got half a dozen families in the course of seven days. Um, just, you know, it was extraordinary. And nowadays it would be difficult if you had to sign MTAs and everything else, but in those days it was easy. Did the work, uh, found that that was indeed the case, and had it in the New England Journal of Medicine 20 years ago. Uh, but the thing about this condition is, apart from the gain of it does need to be distinguished from hypoparathyroidism. They have a much more benign hypocalcemia. They can get seizures and various things, but it's more benign. And they may not require treatment. And when you do treat them with vitamin D analogs, what you might find is that they get polyuria, polydipsia, nephrocalcinosis, and renal failure. The first will get polyuria and polydipsia. And if you looked in the patient's notes, it was often said, you know, a patient came along to the clinic saying, doc, I'm feeling thirsty. I'm passing lots of water. Urgent calcium was done, which is what we'd all do if somebody's on a vitamin D analogue. Calcium comes back normal or at the lower end of normal. And the doctor sort of said, oh, yeah, fine, okay, you know, uh, psychological. You know, as I say, as doctors, we're really good at, you know, something doesn't fit our the data set, that's it. In fact, what that patient is saying is that this calcium for me, although it's in the normal range, is hypercalcemic because that receptor is working overtime. okay? You know, it's really sensing that as a high calcium. Um, And as I say, so so, so that's what these are. And if you leave it for long enough, they'll get uh, kidney stones, nephrocalcitis, and renal failure as well. Uh, And if it's very, very severe, they'll also get uh, a hyperkalemic metabolic alkalosis, salt wasting, and secondary hyperardosteronism. In other words, a Barter syndrome type 5. So that's your ADH over here. That's your FHH over here. And what I was basically saying about this is this. If the normal... Calcium, shall we say, is about 2.5 millimolars up there, right? Here. In ADH, if you brought their calcium up to 2.5, that receptor wouldn't be sensing it working at, at, at 50% EC50. It would be sensing it's, it's about 80 90%. Okay? So that's why these patients are really hypercalci- sensing hypercalcium. This is, it's a calcium sensing. thing. So here we are with this. Now, here's a very strange thing. If you look at this leucine at 173 and this pro, proline at 221, if you mutate it to uh, that leucine to a proline, you get FHH. If you mutate that leucine to a phenylalanine, you get ADH. And if you look at the, uh, over here uh, at codon 221, if you mutate that proline uh, to glutamine, you get FHH. If you mutate it to a leucine, you get ADH. Isn't this funny? that you've got the same amino acid at the same place, and if you alter it to different amino acids, you're getting completely different things. Well, perhaps it is and perhaps it isn't. If you think about amino acids as building blocks, so supposing you've got your Lego set and you're building a wall, and you know in the Lego set, you can get these sort of nice cube bricks, you can also get circular bricks, you can get triangular ones, you can get all sorts of shapes and sizes. So you're building a wall, and supposing instead in that wall, you put, instead of putting a, a, a cuboid brick, you put in a, a, a big circular one. It's going to weaken that wall. It's going to knock it down. Okay? But if you instead you put in a triangular one, it may not knock it down. It might be relatively stable, but not as stable if it was a cuboid one. Okay? So it does matter what brick you put in there. And that's the same thing with these amino acids. They're just like building blocks in a Lego set, really, I guess. Sorry, I have a very naive mind. That's why I think in this all, it's the only way I can understand complicated things. So, you know, but so that's telling you what what you're talking about here in the wall is what's critical is the structure of that. So, with the calcium sensing receptor, by and large, we've been guessing what its structure is. And there's a real wonderful paper that just came out in September, and this is from Arthur's group uh, 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 here. uh, here. Um, And uh, what they've shown is that. This is the extracellular domain and it forms dimers and these residues here, the leucine of the proline, are actually at this interface of this dimer. What is extraordinary also is that they are very close to these salt bridges over here that hold that dimer together. And that is very important, that dimerization, the conformation for activation of this receptor. So we, we, we now revise this. Previously we thought, because this is said to be one of the calcium entry sites over here for ligand binding, that because these were on either side of the calcium uh, pathway over here, that we thought they might act as gatekeepers. There is a possibility that it might do that, but I think a better explanation probably is this, that they, they, that they somehow or the other may hinder these salt bridges and formation of this dimer and conformation, and thereby either make it more stable and amenable for, for activation or less stable and less amenable for activation. And I think those things, I'd really be interested to hear Arthur's comments on that and, and, and Quinn Fan's comments, who the first uh, was involved in that as well, uh, as, as to how that might be. Okay? But I, th- I think you know, there are still some wonderful, fascinating aspects c- c- coming through on this. Now, I, I mentioned about structure, and, and, and ligands and things. So of course that brings us over to drugs really. And uh, th- th- there are two sorts of drugs. There are allosteric modulators and orthosteric modulators. So orthosteric means it's binding to the binding site over there. Allosteric means it's binding somewhere else and influencing activity. And there are several uh, 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 here as well. Of course there's calcium, uh, that, 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 that's the, the agonist. But there are calcium mimetics which actually uh, uh, mimic calcium. And here they will uh, increase this activity and reduce PTH secretion, and the calciolytics, which will decrease the activity of the receptor and increase PTH over here. And the positive modulator, the calcium mimetics, uh, they're already on the market. This is Cinacalcet, and it's already as a therapy for secondary hyperparathyroidism, parathyroid carcinoma, and some instances of inoperable primary hyperparathyroidism. And the negative ones are the calciolytics, this NPS compound, for example, that increases PTH and plasma calcium and is a potential therapy for ADH uh, when it comes about. So we've explored its potential use in ADH, and we've got a mouse uh, at codon. uh, This is an activating mutation, leucine uh, to glutamine over here at codon 273. Um, And it's called NUF. Uh, not after the Nuffield Department of Medicine where I'm I'm based, uh, but actually because it was nuclear flex, and the mouse doctors have really wonderful ways of naming uh, doctors. We've got a mouse with diabetes, and they call it treacle. Uh, So they come up with all these names, but this is called Nuff because of nuclear flex, and it's got cataracts. But I won't tell you about going to that story right now, but suffice it, can we correct this with this calciolytic? Yes, we can. So here's our assay, intracellular calcium, extracellular calcium over here. The black line over here is the normal wild-type receptor. This is the muted receptor over here. You can see it's shifted to the left. Gain of function. uh, uh, And a much lower EC50. When we put 20 nanomolar off this compound, oops where has it gone? That one up there. Purely by chance, we rectify it, and it's superimposed on the wild-type curve. So 20 nanomolar, small dose, will do the trick. If we, give, if we put more in the medium, 40 and 80 nanomolar, we shift this curve over this way. So here is a gain-of-function mutation curve. You give this drug and you can actually convert it into a loss of function, okay? So it, it really is an amazing dose dependency of it. But 20 nanomolar would do the trick. Okay, that's in vitro. Now, we all know you can use things in vitro, but when you go to the in vivo situation, it doesn't work sometimes, okay? So what's happening in vivo? Well, because we had a mouse model, we were able to give it to the mouse, uh, and this was just published last year over here. And what it does is, uh, yes, when you give it, uh, this is the uh, untreated heterozygous Nuff Nuff mice, uh, and these here are uh, Nuff mice in red given vehicle only, and the blue ones are given the drug, okay? So when you give uh, these mice... The the drug, you can see there's an increase in PTH over here within an hour, comes down again, so it's short acting. And if you look at the plasma calcium in these mice, wow, look at that, comes up very nicely. In fact, it's uh, uh, corrected, we made them slightly hypercalcemic there. Uh, And by four hours, there's no difference between that and that over there. And the other advantage is it doesn't increase the urinary calcium. So if you were to give this drug, Two patients, they will not become hypercalsteoric and be at risk of renal failure and and, 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 then, and so at the moment, Mike Collins is actually uh, undertaking some early phase uh, trials in patients with ADH uh, with this compound. Now, I've focused at the moment on the calcium sensing receptor and um, Arthur, wave to me when we're, we're getting there, okay, yeah? Um, and um, uh, 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 What I said earlier on is if you look at patients with calcium sensing receptor mutations, some of them are normal. What I didn't tell you is if you look at patients with FHH, not all of them have calcium sensing receptor mutations. Only about 65% of patients will have mutations of the calcium sensing receptor, and this is now called FHH1. So the question is what's happening in the other one-third of patients? Well, I've got to tell you the story if I can in a little while, there's FHH2 caused by mutations of G-alpha 11, which is downstream of the calcium sensing receptor, and also of this adapter protein to a sigma subunit uh, over here. So let me just tell you about these uh, uh, over here. So in one of these, we took what's called the hypothesis-driven approach, and the other one is the hypothesis-generating approach, and we have these papers in the New England Journal of Nature Genetics over here. And let me tell you about the hypothesis-driven one. This is what grant-giving bodies like okay, you know, that you've got a hypothesis and you're doing it. They don't like this approach here, which is, they call a fishing trip. I like to call it a hypothesis-generating uh, thing. But there we are. We, we all have our little things here. So let me tell you about FHH2. Uh, FHH2, uh, um, uh, Hunter Heath in the U.S. Uh, reported this uh, in, in a kindred uh, from the USA. It was in Salt Lake. We identified it was in the Mayo Clinic and then it was in Salt Lake City. And he rang me up and said, hey, look, you know, why don't you do this? Uh, So I said, fine. So it was mapped to chromosome 19p to the short arm. There were 800 genes in there. Uh, So, you know, you have to take your pick on that. But we thought, well, let's look at those 800 genes and and see if we could identify something that was reasonable. And we thought, ah, hang on, G alpha 11 is is there. Why? Well, G alpha 11 is located on chromosome 19p, the location of the FHH2. Admittedly, it's one of 800 genes, but, you know... The other thing is the CSR signals through G alpha 11, so it's right here. Uh, and also, mice harboring parathyroid-specific deletions of G alpha 11 and G alpha Q, you need to have both, uh, develop calcemia. So I thought, this is a no-brainer, it's got to be this, okay, yeah? So Fadil uh, uh, and Andrew started sequencing this, and cut a long story short, yep, they found the mutation. And uh, I won't take you through all this in the interest of time, take my word for it. It's a three base pair deletion, it's in frame, so instead of, in the, in the, in the, normal it's isoleucine, isoleucine, phenylalanine, what you do is you've got isoleucine, phenylalanine, arginine, okay, yeah, so you've lost one amino acid in, in that uh, thing, and this is all the restriction enzyme, and it co-segregates in the family, okay, so it co-segregates, it's, it's, it's one amino acid loss, but the big question is, you've just lost one amino acid. What a big deal. I mean, you know, how come this actually gives rise to this, the, the, this, this phenotype? What, what, what's so special about this? Well, we went to the structure to look at it. So the first thing to say is that isoleucine over here is highly conserved throughout species in other orthologs. And it's conserved pretty much in some of the paralogs as well. So evolution thinks this is pretty important. It's here, it's situated in this beta 2, beta 3 loop over here of uh, G alpha 11. Now if you look at the beta 2, beta 3 loop, uh, which is this bit over here, the linking region if you look at it that way, it's 13 amino acids. It's 13 amino acids in all the orthologs, it's also 13 amino acids in all the other paralogs. So evolution thinks length is important, okay? Uh, and we all know length can be important, okay, yeah? So, Let me illustrate this way. So here it is, over here, and you lose that, and you get this phenotype. Now, we've had a bit of controversy in the lab about this, okay? Sarah and I call this a skipping rope mutation, but some people don't like that. I think Fidel and Andrew think it's a bit too trivial, but we need to call it something else. But let me tell you why I call it a skipping rope mutation. Hands up in the audience, those of you that have skipped... Right, okay, those of you who put your hands up, you can ask your neighbors about that, okay? I'm not gonna ask you to skip, okay? Now, you all know when you're skipping or when a child is skipping, that the length of that rope is very important for the efficiency of that skipping. If it's too short, all right, the child needs to skip or needs to jump higher and may not be able to do it, okay, and it's inefficient. If it's too long, it will drag on the floor, okay, And won't be able to skip either, right? So length is important, okay, yeah? I can tell you we've actually done everything to those 13 amino acids. We've taken out one amino acid at a time and, and changed it. We've ch- done, ch- converted them to alanine and everything else. It's very tightly uh, 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 conserved in terms of that loop. There are lots of hydrogen bonds in there for that loop, and this is the bit that interacts with the CASR, okay? Uh, so length is important if you delete that, uh, you will, you, will, you will lose efficiency um, of its functioning. So does that actually work in real terms? Well, here, here's, here it is. Here's the wild type in black. Uh, so the, the, this is uh, cells that are now expressing CASR, and we're now transfecting with either the wild type or the mutant over here, and you can see we've got a rightward shift and a higher EC50. So this mutation is resulting in a loss of function of the calcium-sensing receptor. The calcium-sensing receptor is normal. Okay, but this is influencing how it's working in its signaling. So here we've got a loss-of-function mutation. So, of course, we're very naive. We've got a loss-of-function mutation giving rise to FHH uh, here. So the obvious question is, can we get gain-of-function mutations giving rise to ADH? So we went to our, 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 our pool of patients who got ADH but haven't got CSR mutations. And cut a long story short, yep, uh, we've got gain-of-function mutations here as well. So these are the loss-of-function mutations, the one I showed to you there. There's another one over here as well. And these are the gain-of-function mutations over here uh, that, that, that we've got. Uh, and you can see that, that there's a left shift to here. So we've got both sets uh, over here. We've got FHH2 and ADH2 as well. Now, we haven't treated patients with this, but we've done the in vitro study to see whether or not the calcium mimetics in a calcet and whether or not the calciolity can, can rectify the effects of these mutations. And, the, and, the, and the, the short answer is yes, they can. Here's the wild type. This is the EC50 of the uh, loss of function mutations, they're much higher. You treat them and you can either normalize them or get them to normal with a higher dose. So there is a dosage effect here. And equally on the ADH side, you can uh, uh, get, get, get them up to normal uh, as, as well. So these drugs, can actually work in vitro. We haven't, we haven't done this on patients yet. Um, uh, I can tell you we've done it on a mouse model, and it works as well. So the next one I want to talk to you is the FHH3. Uh, uh, we Michael White identified the original family in Oklahoma, and we mapped it to chromosome 19Q13 over here and narrowed it down to a 4 million base pair region that had about 120 genes in it. Quite a lot, actually. We, this is one of the most gene-rich areas in the, all of the human genome. We came across a family from Northern Ireland, and we managed to narrow it down by about a million base pairs, but there's still 110 genes in there. So the rule, or the modus operandi in the lab was very simple. Had a new PhD student or a new fellow coming into the lab, and I'd sit down with them and I'd sort of say, this is you know, wonderful, great you join. I'll tell you what, we've got this project over here, 110 genes in there. Why don't you have a look to see um, uh, uh, which genes you'd like to analyze? Uh, go ahead and do you realize it's got to be there, okay, right? And if you identify it, you know, you will become rich and famous, okay? Well, not quite, you know, but you know what I mean, okay? So this was the spur of the enthusiasm on it, and they'd all start on it saying, wow, this is great, I'm going to get this done. You know? After they done about three disillusionment set in big time, Okay, and I, I needed to reach out for the antidepressants for them, and also move them onto a slightly different project where they had more sort of success. And I think you're all laughing because you've all probably been there as well. Okay, yeah. So I, I worked out that you know if this was going to happen, three genes per PhD student or fellow before they moved on to something else, and I had 100, to 110 to look out there. You can do the calculation as well as I can. You know that's going to need at least about 33, 35. Uh, students and fellows, and that's a long time to work and wait, okay? So, fortunately, next generation sequencing came along, and this is one of the first ones we, 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 we did, and uh, we found a mutation in this thing called AP2S1, uh, and they all involved codon 15. They all mutated the cysteine at codon 15, and they changed it either to um, histidine, leucine, uh, or, 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 uh, or, or arginine. Sorry, it was, it was an arginine residue and it either changes to cysteine, histidine, or leucine. And this is the family, or just a part of the family, and take my word for it, that they all co-segregate some various things. So here we had a very specific amino acid residue that was being mutated. Now, what is, a, what is AP2S1, and what is adapter protein 2, and why, how can it do this? Well, this is what we postulated in our nature genetics paper. Here's the calcium sensing receptor, binds calcium, Acts via G, uh, G proteins, uh, and, and this bit you've seen over here with FHH2. But I haven't told you what happens after that. So the receptor is activated, and what, uh, what happens, uh, what we need to do, be able to do is in, in budget, is to, we need to internalize it and deactivate it, so it binds to beta-arrestin, and the other molecule it binds to is AP2, adaptor protein 2. This is a heterotetrameric complex composed of alpha, beta, mu, and sigma subunits, and it gets internalized, into the, to form these clathrin-coated vesicles for um, endosomal uh, processing. Uh, and uh, th- th- this, this is absolutely key to this process. It hooks onto a dilucine motif of cargo proteins and internalizes it. <clears throat> so, if you mutate that, with, uh, and, and showed them this dilucid motif. Here's the wild-type, it forms these polar contacts over here. You mutate that arginine residue, say to cysteine, you lose those polar contacts, so it's not going to be able to hook the dilucid motif uh, there and internalize it. And if you do the functional analysis over here, you can see you've got a loss of function uh, mutation. Uh, what we have been able to do in, in, in addition to that um, is that we've... Um, uh, got a genotype-phenotype correlation over here where FHH3 is more severe than FHH1. And the other thing is, is that if you look at um, uh, uh, certain mutations in FHH3, again, there is a genotype-phenotype uh, correlation where the leucine uh, mutants are more severely hypercalcemic than the histidine ones uh, uh, over here. So these patients have much more severe hypercalcemia. They have symptomatic... They do have other difficulties as a result of that. And the question is, can we do something about it? And here we've tried uh in terms of treatment, and we can actually normalize the EC50 in each one of those mutations in vitro. So what happens when we do it in vivo? And this just came out in the New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year. Here is one patient over here. You can see that uh, this patient had parathyroidectomy, uh, and, and nothing uh, really happened. We treated them with cinacalcet, and look at that, the calcium really popped down uh, uh, over here. There was a tr- some trouble with compliance, but now that the patient's taking the cinacalcet, it's almost normal over there. Uh, this patient came along to us early, uh, treated them with cinacalcet. and look, we normalized the calcium, stopped taking the cinacalcet, cal- the calcium went up again. And this patient had everything. Perminaturate infusion didn't really do much, parathyroidectomy didn't do much. Treat them with synocalcite, and look at that. It comes right down. So synocalcite in these patients works, bearing in mind that the synocalcite is binding to the calcium-sensing receptor, and this mutation is way, way downstream of that, and it still works, which is remarkable. So let me just try and summarize things over here. Uh, I uh, hope I've shown you that insights by studying disorders of calcium metabolism can, give, can, can, can reveal interesting biology in terms of signaling uh, with the FHH1 and ADH1 mutations and the FHH2 and the ADH2 mutations due to the CASR mutations and G alpha 11 and also trafficking which is what AP2S1 is involved in uh, uh, over here. And I hope that in the sort of last uh, 40, 50 minutes, what I've done is to take you through an interesting journey uh, from early identifications in the rhino Uh, to uh, uh, physiology over here and now actually trying to fill in our knowledge with those arrows where the gaps are in a number of different uh, areas over here. And of course, it's been my good luck to tell you about this, but the work's been done by uh, members in the team, uh, some of whose photographs we've already seen. Uh, There's Andrew over there, uh, there's Fadil over there, and that's Sarah over there, and many others as, as, as well, and of course, All of our collaborators and patients as well. Martha, sorry if I've overrun a little bit on that one. Thanks. Thank you very much,
0: Raj. Thank you very much for a a very exciting and uh, presentation, and uh, a presentation which highlights um, uh, Raj's passion, I think, for solving clinical problems. And in fact. Uh, He told me earlier today that uh, one of the things that had animated his research career was um, the need to try to understand what were otherwise uh, very difficult to understand clinical problems. And at the very end of his talk we saw a spiral staircase which happens to be uh, at the uh, clinical research labs uh, at the uh, Churchill and Radcliffe hospitals in, um, in Oxford. And it's a place that brings together, as we see in the Charles Perkins Centre and some of our other new uh, clinical research facilities here, the patients and the research. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's just wonderful to, to see uh, just how Raj's own research career has been um, driven by his passion to um, understand the, the clinical problems at, at the um, at, at the fundamental level and then to go on uh, to develop treatments as we've just seen for those conditions so um, Raj thank you very much for, for a wonderful lecture um, I might uh, I think we do have perhaps a couple of minutes for questions for, for those of us who um, uh, don't need to rush off the um, the demonstration of the three different ver- variants uh, of um, fHH where we have a uh, an increase in the plasma calcium level and, and a reduction uh, in the urine calcium level, so a, a disturbance that, that we now know is involved you know, with the calcium receptor and also with the G protein that couples to it and also with a protein that perhaps controls uh, its trafficking. Is there a, a, a simple way in which we can separate uh, the diagnoses of those conditions based on the analysis that you've, you've, you've done to date?
1: Arthur, I wish there was, actually. I think the short answer is
0: uh, no, there isn't. Uh,
1: the only clue we might possibly have is uh, the, the severity of the hypercalcemia. Uh, it's more, it seems to be more severe in those with FHH3, but there is still quite a it's statistically significant, but for an individual patient, you can't pick it out. Yes. For FHH2, it's very difficult to say. Um, I think there are only three published report, three uh, published uh, mutations in the world literature um, two in the New England, one from other paper we've, we've got, and there's a fourth one coming. Uh, so it's too, it's too early to say uh, on that, but I, I think you, you can't really tell uh, from the patient. That okay, thank you. Are
0: there <coughs> other, any other questions, Rebecca? Uh, very so there's a microphone coming. Oh, thank you. With the FHH3, with the adapter protein inactivating mutation, what happens to calcium-sensing receptor expression on the cell surface? Um,
1: that's a really interesting question. Okay, So um, we, we did the study, and what we found was that the CSR plasma membrane expression was increased. So in other words, the receptor isn't being internalized. Now that creates a lot of problems, Okay, and uh, we're doing some work to figure out what's going on on that. And suffice it to say that what we are saying about the CSR staying at the cell surface is true, but there is something else happening in the signaling that's actually uh, contributing to it. Uh, and I, we're just trying to finish that work now and submitting the paper. Sarah. I think it's going to be a, a, a pharmacological chaperoning effect, because uh, we know it does do that in a way. And when I'm talking about the other signaling, uh, I, th- I think that, that that's where it's really beginning to act as well. That, that would be the more logical explanation uh, for it. That, you know, otherwise, it's difficult to envisage it. Yeah. No.
0: Uh, yeah, hopefully I haven't covered ground, because I got here late. Unfortunately, Miss missed most of your lecture, but I picked up. I just wanted to ask you, thinking a bit laterally, um, Uh, Calcium uh, in therapeutic uses is often synergistically associated with uh, magnesium and a few other minerals. just wondered if any of your research in terms of the receptors, you found any synergistic effects of calcium requiring magnesium or boron, the other synergistic factors that are often used in therapeutic uh, 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 uses. Um, I'm just wondering if, if there was any evidence of that.
1: Uh, I think the world's expert is standing on my left on that question, actually. But I I think it would be fair to say that this thing will sense magnesium as well. Uh, And and magnesium acts through this receptor as well.
0: Anything else besides magnesium? Uh,
1: Yeah, gadolinium, yttrium... um, but strontium, polyamines, any, any, anything that's positively charged, um, uh, amino acids as well. Sorry, Kevin, but one of the things I said about this receptor, it is incredibly promiscuous mm-hmm. about who it holds hands with and also the G proteins that it couples to. So
0: there's a lot of possibilities to follow through there. On, yeah. Thank okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. you. And a lot of, lot of different signaling pathways. Yeah. And I, just,
0: I mean, that, that in some ways sounds crazy, um, of course, uh, but it does belong to uh, uh, the nutrient-sensing family of, of G-protein-coupled receptors, uh, and, in fact, these receptors do have um, roles in sensing macronutrients as well as micronutrients, and, and the critical... Uh, the, well, I think there are two key elements to the response um, or, or to the nature of the differences in the responses. Um, one is... What is the compartment that the receptor is actually expressed in? Because in some situations, it's actually expressed in the gut, for example, and so it's actually exposed to macronutrients in in a way that... uh, or changes in the concentrations of macronutrients. Um, And the other is um, the way in which uh, the receptor, when it binds to a a certain um, uh, ligand, um, a certain nutrient, will adopt a characteristic conformation, which means it will bind to... Certain G-proteins are not necessarily others. Certain binding partners are not others. And so, so, in fact, you can get high fidelity in terms of the signaling and the responses as, as are a consequence of that. So it changes your way, your, your, your uh, understanding of what a receptor actually means. It's, so the, the old notion of lock and key is correct up to a certain point, but, but certainly it doesn't describe these phenomena. All right, look, thank you. For, I think that uh, brings us to the end of this uh, presentation. Thanks very much for coming, everybody, and please join me in thanking Rose for a wonderful. <laughs>